Please join me this morning in our prayer of illumination. Holy God, Word made flesh, let us come to to this Word open to being surprised. Silence our agendas, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment. Confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our ears, penetrate the corners of our hearts with this word. We know that you can, we pray that you will, and we wait with great anticipation. Amen. Our first reading today is from the book of Psalms, chapter 107 verses 1 through 3, and then verses 23 through 32. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, those he redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the mighty waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord's, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their calamity. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they had quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. Let them, let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading this morning comes from uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern asleep on a cushion, and they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
Two fishermen, they were brothers named Moshe and Yuval Lufin, were trudging along the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is actually a freshwater lake. It's about 33 miles in circumference, 13 miles long, and about eight miles wide. The, the lake is fed partially by underground springs, but its main source of water is the Jordan River. Now, these two brothers that day were walking along the shore, and they had their head down, heads down. If, if you saw them from a distance, you might think that they were uh, in prayer, they were sad, but actually they were looking for treasure. It was the winter of 1986, and there had been a long drought that had gripped the region, causing the Sea of Galilee to one of its lowest recorded points. The Lufen brothers, besides being fishermen, considered themselves kind of amateur archaeologists, and they wondered if the receding waters of the lake might reveal some treasure. And it did. The brothers stumbled across an oval shape in the mud. It appeared to be a boat of some kind, and it looked to them that it was old, very old. So they got really excited about the possibilities, and they knew a few experts in the field, and they called them in to take a look, and the experts began to carefully dig around the mud, and they uncovered one of the greatest archaeological finds in Israel's history. What they had discovered was an intact fishing boat, the kind of boat that probably Jesus and his disciples had used. In fact, radiocarbon dating found that the wooden boat was used sometime in the time of Jesus, give or take, about 80 years. Now, it can't be proven that the disciples used this particular boat, but most craftsmen of the day struck to kind of, stuck to what kind of worked for them. So the boat that they used, most likely, was very similar to this one found in the mud. There have been several ancient boats discovered around the Sea of Galilee, all relatively similar in design, but this one was the oldest so far. It took 11 days for them to carefully uncover the boat. It was 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four feet high. Now back in Jesus's day, four people would have rowed this boat, two on either side, and there would have been a single sail. Now, I borrowed a tape measure from Stacy this weekend, and I came into the sanctuary. I'm a visual learner, so I had to kind of picture in my mind what that boat looked like. So if you can look up here to the front from the first column and go back to the third one, count three back, and then maybe about one row behind the third column, that's 27 feet. The pews are 14 feet across, so again, if you look at that column, you can figure out that that's about the middle, that that's about the width of the boat, and it was the sides of the boat were four feet high, which would be about right here on me. So if you think about that area right there, those three columns, the half that pew, that's not a lot of space for 13 grown men and all of their stuff. I think that's important information for us to kind of keep in our mind as we think about this boat out on the water. I know many of y'all are comfortable with boats. You know, there are more boats in Charleston County than there are people. So that means some of you have more than one boat. 
Now this boat was obviously not some kind of state of the art offshore boat or some kind of inland lake or a fancy sailboat like Dan's father had. No, this is a first century fishing boat. It was built by hand. They probably used different kinds of wood. This, this uh, wood boat that the Lufen brothers found had 17 different varieties of wood in it to make the boat. There were no life preservers. There were no safety protocols, no depth finders or GPS. This was a handmade leaky vessel with no load capacity posted. Boat of this type and this size would have been tough with that many people and that much stuff in the water, much less on a body of water that had fast moving storms. Trouble was bound to happen. So after a long day of teaching to large crowds, Jesus needs a break. He initiates a trip across the Sea of Galilee in a boat. And although he initiates the trip, he's now in the hands of the disciples, who include at least four expert fishermen. But soon a great windstorm arises, so great that the waves crash up against the side of the boat. Remember that boat's only four feet tall or four feet deep, so the waves are four or five, maybe six feet, feet high. The boat begins to take on water, and not even the experienced fishermen can do anything about it. So as a last resort, which is what would seem like the first resort, but it seems to be their last resort, they turn to Jesus and try to wake him up. Maybe he can help. However, Jesus is sound asleep on this boat cushion in the rear of the boat. And the disciples wake him up and rebuke him for his apparent lack of concern, given that he's sound asleep. Once awake, he immediately responds to them in the situation. Scripture says he rises up and rebukes the wind and tells the sea to literally shut up and be silenced. Well, that's my translation anyway, what he says. <laughs> Both the Greek word here for rebuke and be silenced are the same words that is used in the Gospel of Mark to silence a demon. So the lesson should be here for us that Jesus has power over nature and over its causes and effects. The vicious wind has caused a violent storm on the sea and Jesus rebukes one and silences the other. The result of Jesus' word makes the wind grow weary and the sea exhibits a great calm. By the word of Jesus, a great storm becomes great calm. Now once the storm dies down and everybody's relieved, Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them two fundamental questions that lie at the heart of this story. Why are you afraid? And have you still no faith? So I turn that question to us today. Why are we afraid of storms, the storms of our life? And why do we have no faith that Jesus will calm them? We face a lot of storms in life, and we have fear for those storms. Storms that are produced sometimes by nature, hurricanes and floods come to mind. And there are those storms that we create, storms of our own doing. Storms that we create by our actions or storms that we lock in our minds. 
I'll give these self-created storms a name. You can call them fear. We fear an unseen virus. We fear our country is being ruined by whatever political party we happen to oppose. We fear other people who don't look like us, talk like us, dress like us. We fear that our health will fail. We fear we will run out of money in our old age. We fear we won't be able to look after our children. We fear we might lose our job. We fear we might lose a loved one. We fear what the doctor might say. Now, I've seen a lot of fear around this church the last few months. Fear that the church will not survive. Fear that the church will run out of money. Fear that the, that the church might change in ways that I don't like. Fear that new leadership will not be found. Or will not be the kind of leadership that I want. We live in fear. Now please understand me, I'm not saying you shouldn't be concerned about your future, about the future of your family and loved ones, or the future of your church. But it is when we allow fear to take over our thinking when fear takes control of our reactions and our words and our lives, that's when we push Jesus right out of the boat. Here is what I want you to hear today. Fear is not real. Fear only takes rent in our heads and in our hearts when we allow it to. Now, yes, my friends, there is danger in life. And we have a fight or flight instinct response in our DNA that makes us physically react to danger. But danger is not fear. Fear is in your imagination. Danger and the physical and mental reaction that we have to danger is part of who we are as humans. Here's an example. The disciples put themselves in danger by getting into an overloaded leaky boat when they were tired and after a long day of ministry. They were on a sea that was subject to forming quick, violent storms. That's danger, and it's real. But when the storm came, they exhibited fear, and they panicked. Even though they had Jesus right there in the boat with them, a man whom they had followed, who they had seen perform miracles, and yet the faith, their faith was not strong enough or deep enough to put their fear aside. We have that same problem. We put all of our faith in ourselves. We say to ourselves, I don't need anyone's help. I can do this. Or if I save enough money, nothing can happen to me. I don't have to go to the doctor. I've never even had a cold. I will make sure the church does things my way, and then nothing bad can happen. But then a storm brews up, and we hit the panic button, and fear and anxiety go up, and fear is now in control of our life. We need to get in the boat with Jesus and put our faith in Him. Financial wealth will fail. Our health will fail. Relationships will fail. Leaders will fail. But the love of Christ will not fail. And even in the mightiest storm, Christ will not be shaken or will the storm deter him from his purpose in your life. 
Now, I know this is hard for us to grasp. It's hard for me to grasp. We want so badly to be in charge. We want to be the one that controls everything, and we want so desperately to tell that storm what to do. But only Jesus can do that. So stop screaming into the wind and just climb up on that rickety old leaky boat with Jesus. He will calm the storm, and the wind will cease, and the calm of life will return. We all have those storms, and we'll have many storms in life, but it is the calm after the storm that is truly the measure of our faith. Now, I know that all sounds nice and shiny and theological and all that, but what does it look like? Let me give you a couple of examples. I've shared here before and with many of you that uh, when our daughter was born, when we lived uh, in Mississippi, uh, she had some health, uh, very serious health issues. And our pediatrician was stumped. They really couldn't figure out uh, why she was losing weight. Uh, she had failure to thrive and she was a, a very sick little girl. Uh, we visited lots of specialists, a neurologist, gastroenterologist. We ran all kinds of tests and nothing. Finally, we were referred uh, to Labonner Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee to see a pediatric gastroenterologist. There was a lot of fear in our car that day as we drove up to Memphis uh, for our first appointment. Uh, it's been 23 years ago and I still remember the fear. I still remember that car ride. What did the future hold for Carter, for our little family? As we waited that morning to meet the doctor, a man appeared in the hospital waiting room and asked for us. He was a stranger. We didn't know him. It turned out to be the Reverend Ernest Meller, a parish associate at Germantown Presbyterian Church. Uh, Germantown's just a suburb of Memphis. Susie's parents had been members of this church, and Susie and I had actually been married in that church, and the church had gotten word that we would be at Labonner that morning. I'm sure it didn't take this wise pastor very long to read us like a book. We were exhausted, we were panic-stricken, we were filled with fear, and we were at our wit's end. He stayed with us all through the pre-exam. And just as before the doctor came into the examination room, he asked if he could pray for us. I still remember how I felt when he prayed. When he prayed for Carter, when he prayed for her family and all the doctors and nurses and technicians that were looking after her. He, complete, he concluded his prayer with this verse from Isaiah. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strength to the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. As Ernest finished his prayer, there was obviously not a dry eye in that examination room, including all the nurses. Soon the doctor entered, Dr. Gene Whittington, and he went on to develop a treatment plan that would save Carter's life. From that point forward, I had no fear. It took several years of treatment and many, many doctor's visits 
there were still many times that I was concerned and that I was nervous, but my fear had vanished. Also, just this week, we received a graduation invitation from a young lady named Olivia, whose family lives in Lynchburg, Virginia, the church that I came from. Uh, one of the great joys of being a pastor is watching the little children, the baptized and the little kids that come up for children's church, is watching them grow up and seeing all the great things that they do in youth group and they go on with their lives. So it was with great joy we received this uh, invitation to Olivia's high school graduation. Well, also, also this week, my wife Susie was going through some old files and she found uh, a prayer uh, that we had, that Olivia had written uh, five or six years ago. We had done a, a thing in our church uh, where we asked families to write some prayers and we would incorporate those into the weekly worship service as prayers of the people. And, and so I wanted to share with you uh, Olivia's prayer uh, that she gave to us to include. She wanted to pray for all the graduating seniors that are going off to college the people that were in a, a hurricane, people in different parts of the world that are not allowed to worship Christ, and people that did not know about Christ. The people were affected by tornadoes in Oklahoma. Now Jesus tells us to have faith like a child. I think Olivia's prayer has concern. Olivia is obviously concerned about these things, but she is not fearful. She sees and expects God's power to intercede. So my friends, I know life is hard and it's full of fearsome things. I talk to many of you every week and I hear your heartfelt cries and your suffering, your fears, the hard truth is that fearsome things are real. Isolation, pain, illness, meaninglessness, rejection, losing our job, money problems, failure, illness, and death. As we grow in our faith, we come to understand that even though such things are real, they do not have the last word in our lives. They do not have ultimate power over us because reigning over this world of fearsome things is a God who is mightier than these things are. A God who creates out of nothing and, who God, and a God who stills the storm of life with a word. When I'm struggling and, and really wrestling with things, I constantly turn to this phrase, it's spoken by almost every angel that appears in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. One writer said of this phrase, it is the first and the last word of the gospel. It is the word of the angels that speak to the terrified shepherds. And it is the word spoken at Jesus' tomb when the, when the women discover that the tomb is empty. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid brings me comfort, not because there is nothing to fear. Nothing to fear on the seas of our life and not because there are no storms or fierce winds or waves, but because God is with us. Jesus is right there in the boat with us. 
He's there with us in the storm before the calm. So I ask you today this question. Who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? He is the Christ. He is our Savior and Lord. Put your faith in him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.